All right, good evening, camp. How we doing? Cool. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and Gospel of John, chapter 8. That's where we're going to be tonight. John, chapter 8. As we get going. Let, John, chapter 8. So here's where we are in the story. Jesus comes onto the scene. Everyone wants to know who Jesus is all about. He begins to make claims about himself. He begins to teach about himself. And what we see very quickly in the Gospel of John is that as Jesus is making claims about himself and teaching about himself and authenticating those claims through miracles, people start to notice and people start to chatter. And sooner or later, there start to be a certain group of people who follow after Jesus and are excited about what he has to say. But then I want you to understand something tonight. I want you to understand that there is another group of people who are not appreciative of what Jesus has to say. In fact, there's another group of people who hates what Jesus has to say. And this will be the same group of people that we will see tomorrow night as the story continues that will put Jesus to death. So see, one of the things that could, should confront this image of Jesus, remember we talked about the Jesus who's just like a nice guy who would never offend anyone, who's just always smiling and giving warm hugs to everyone? You should expel that vision of Jesus from your mind because you know what happened? Jesus said things... And Jesus taught things that made very powerful people angry, angry enough to want to kill him, and they did. And here's why I open with that tonight. Because tonight, we are going to look at a story in Scripture that I think will make some of you very angry. In fact, I think by the end of my sermon tonight, there will be a number of you who are angry with me. And I want you to know this. I want you to know that I'm 100% okay with that. Like, I did not come up here to make friends. I did not come up here to impress you. I did not come up here to say the things you wanted to hear. I came up here to declare what God says is true over your life. That's what I have come to do. And if that stirs you up in anger and stirs you up in rage, that is something I can handle. But let me just offer a challenge before I even say anything tonight. And it has nothing to do with this sermon. It has everything to do with your life, whether you are a Christian or not. Whether you believe in Jesus and follow him or you're not so sure, would you just make a decision in your life and make a commitment from this day going forward that you will always allow people to speak into your life who disagree with you? Would you not become the type of person, and I know these people and you know these types of people, who never allow anyone to disagree with them? And so all they do is surround themselves with people who already agree with them and no one's ever able to challenge them or push back? Would you be the type of person who surrounds yourself with people who are willing to push back on you, and even more, if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, would you commit for the rest of your life to sit under the teaching of pastors who are willing to challenge you and push back on what you believe? See, all of you have pastors and youth pastors at your church, and my hope is this, that occasionally they'll get up and give a sermon that will bother you and frustrate you, and to your core you will feel challenged and you will not like it. And I want to challenge you to continue to sit under their teaching to not become the miserable kind of person who will never be challenged, who will never be pushed back on. Because I know those people, and you know those people, and I think we can all agree that those are completely, wildly unhappy people. See, the people in this world who flourish the way God meant them to be are the people who can receive hard things, the people who can listen to the words of Jesus and, and not check out or push back or, or just say, I don't feel good about this, so I'm going to go a different direction, but rather allow the word of God to sit heavy on their hearts See, this is what we're going to see in John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles open, it'll be in verse 2 where we begin. 
It says that dawn, he appeared. So that's Jesus appearing here. And when it says he appeared, it just means he showed up in their temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, here's how the story opens. The story opens with Jesus, and he's in the temple courts, which was like the equivalent of the main church in the area. And he's there, and he's teaching, and suddenly, out of nowhere, this woman gets dragged in. And here's the scene, because some of us don't really see the Bible in full color. Here's the scene. It's really like actually rated mature here. This woman, it says, was caught in the act of adultery. Like she was having sex with someone, they caught her, and they took her out. There's no chance this woman is wearing clothes. This is a humiliating and intense, and every eye is on this moment. She is dragged into the temple courts and thrown before Jesus. And from my reading of this text, there are at least three things going on here that grieve the heart of God Almighty. Three things going on here that are sinful in the eyes of our God. The first is the obvious one. The first is the act of adultery. This woman was having sex with someone who was not her husband. That's what adultery is. Anytime you have sex with someone who is not your spouse, that is sin in the eyes of God. This woman was having sex with someone who was not her spouse. It was sin in God's eyes. The second sin that I see here that grieves the heart of God is the sin of bullying and harassment. There's absolutely no justification and no reason this woman needs to be humiliated in this kind of way. There's no reason she needs to be dragged out of wherever this was happening and into the public temple court to be humiliated and embarrassed by these men. See, the first sin is adultery. The second sin is bullying and harassment. Can I tell you the third sin I see here? Some of you might not have even noticed this. The third sin I see here is the sin of sexism. Because you ever notice that adultery is not a one-person sin? There's plenty of one-person sins where it's just you doing it on your own. Adultery ain't one of them. Adultery takes two people. Where's the man is my question. If they're going to bring this woman up, where's the man? So they're not even bringing him into the picture. So there's this kind of latent sexism against this woman going on here. There are three sins here at the very least that grieve the heart of God. And tonight, what I want to talk to you about is the biblical word sin. I want you to understand the truth of sin. I want you to understand how God sees sin. I want you to understand how Jesus interacts with sin because sin is a big deal in the Bible. It's not some small thing that you can push off as an old-fashioned word that you want nothing to do with. Sin runs all throughout the Bible as a major issue that God is addressing in our lives. And right here in this text, we see at least three of them. We see adultery, we see bullying, we see sexism. And I could go on and on and list what the Bible calls sin. And here's what you need to know. The Bible calls sin that which grieves the heart of God. If God grieves it, if God says it's wrong, it is sin. You don't get a vote. You don't get to make it up. You don't get to say, well, I don't think this is sinful or, well, I think this is sinful. God gets to define it. And we said why God gets to define it on the very first night, right? God created the world. Therefore, he gets to define the world. Like it's God's house, so he gets to make the rules. It's like this. I got a buddy named Jacob. And uh, from time to time, I go over to Jacob's house. And Jacob has a, a very strict rule in his house. It's not a suggestion. It is a rule that he has laid down. And here's the rule. I wonder if it's true in any of your home. In Jacob's home, 
you are not allowed to wear shoes inside the house. Anyone else have that rule? The no shoe thing? A handful of you, some of you don't. But like Jacob's real strict on it. So I want you to imagine that I walk into Jacob's house. I come up to the door, knock, knock, knock. I come on in. Jacob's like, hey, Brian, welcome. I've been there a number of times. He knows I know the shoe rule. And I just go ahead and walk on in his house. And he goes, hold on, hold on, Brian. You, you know the rule here. And can you imagine if I looked at Jacob? I was like, Jacob, I know you have that whole shoe thing. And like taking off the shoe, I know that's like your thing, but I just disagree. And he's like, uh, okay, that's fine. You don't have to do it in your house, but this is my house. You've got to take off your shoes. I'm like, no, Jacob, actually, I brought with me a study that says my feet are grosser than my shoes. And so I'd like you to read this study because science has proven it's actually better to wear shoes in the house. And Jacob goes, I don't really care what it says. This is my house, and I get to make the rules. See, all of you understand this story. I'm being the ridiculous one, right? It's his house. He gets to make the rules. And here's what I need you to know about the universe you live in. It's God's house. He made it. He gets to call the shots. He gets to define reality. He gets to make the rules. And if God says something is sin, it is sin no matter how you feel about it, no matter how how much you like it or not, no matter how much the modern culture says, oh, that's no big deal. God gets to call the shots. And here's what sin is to its core. If you're writing down notes, here's what sin is. Three words. Sin is us looking at God And saying this to him, I know better. That's what sin is. Sin is us looking at the holy God of the universe who created all things, defines all things. It's his house. It's his rules. And we look at the God of the universe and go, that's real cute, God. But I know better. What you're saying, in effect, is God, I'm smarter than you. I know more than you. And no one in this room would ever actually say you're smarter than God. And yet what you do every time you walk in sin is you go, God, I know what you have to say, but I know better. It's like this. I've got my, my kids I talk about all the time, and my older two, um, almost every night that I'm home, we'll do bath time. So I'll scream out, bath time, and they'll run upstairs, and we'll do bath with bubbles. It's this whole fun thing. It's the highlight of my son's day. My daughter loves it. It's the highlight of my son's day. We get into the bath time, and here's the one struggle that we have with bath time. Every single night, this has been going on for years, his entire life, this has been the problem. My son breaks one rule, and the one rule I have during bath time is, you are not allowed to drink the bath water. (laughs) And you laugh, but the man, the little guy, just goes like, it's like he's found the fountain of youth. He's like, hello! He has these little cups he plays with, and he'll like pour back and forth, and then I'll turn around to do something, and he'll just take a little swig of it. And I'm like, oh, don't drink the bath water. And then I tell him not to drink the bath water, and sometimes he holds the cup up to his lip and looks at me like, what's you going to do about it? <laughs> and here's the deal. Like, why don't I want my son to drink the bath water? Is it because I hate him? No. It's not like, well, I hate my son and I want him to have no fun in life, so no drinking bath water, right? Like, why do I do this? Because I know him drinking bath water is going to make him sick. It's not just some arbitrary rule I made up. I know how the world works and he's too and he knows nothing. And here's what you need to know about your God. Your God knows everything about how this world works because he created it. And because he created it, he knows what's best for you. So when God says this is sin, he's not just making some arbitrary rule for you to follow. He's saying if you walk in sin, you will become sick. And I don't want you to become sick. I want you to walk in the fullness of life and walk in health. And so God says, don't do this. And in our arrogance as human beings, we look at God and we go, I 
know better. Like earlier, I talked about adultery. Like you just like that God's command over our lives is that we would only have sex in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman, covenant relationship forever. That's marriage, that's sex, that's the rules God makes. And you know what we do? We go, God, I know what you said, but me and my boyfriend, we just like really love each other. And it's not like other relationships. We're going to go all the way the distance. We're basically already married. Like we, we've been dating for six months and that's forever. So like it's fine. God, I know better than you. Like some of you do that. Like, do you know the scriptures actually say that you would be completely sober-minded, that you would not drink or or use drugs, that you would not intoxicate yourself in such a way? Like, the scriptures are actually going to say, do not get drunk on wine, do not get drunk, do not be intoxicated, and yet some of you are like, it's no big deal. Everyone does it. It's my body. I can do whatever I want. I can put whatever I want in it. What you're saying is, God, I know what you said, but I know better. Like, do you know that the Bible actually commands you? This isn't like a suggestion or a nice thing that we make up in youth group. The Bible actually commands you not to be a gossip. And yet for some of you, gossip is not just a thing you do occasionally. It's a way of life. You just get around your friends and you just chit-chat about everyone else and every little note that you heard. And someone says something to you like, hey, I'm going to share something with you. Just make sure to never share it. You're like, absolutely never. They walk away. You're like on the phone. You're like, hey, I got to tell you, right? And, and, and we kind of dismiss gossip as no big deal. But God calls it sin. And we look at the God of the universe and we go, I know better. You know what else the Bible calls sin? Let me speak to you young men. I know this is true for ladies too, but I'm going to talk to the men right now. Do you know that the Bible calls laziness a sin? It does. Okay. Eyes right here. Eyes right here. Listen. Um, and, and it is kind of this popular thing to call yourself lazy as if that's some admirable trait. And, and let me just tell you this. A lazy man is not living up to the godly man that God has called you to be. And you look at God and you think, well, I'm just kind of this way. It's not a big deal. I'm just going to kind of kick back and lay low and play video games and do my thing and not really engage with the world. And God looks at that and says it's sin. And you look at God and say, I know better. See what happens here. Jesus is serious about sin because Jesus cares about your life. He knows that sin is poison. He knows that sin will lead you astray. He knows that sin will make you sick. Like my son drinking bathwater, he knows that it will cause you harm. And he calls you out of it not because he hates you, but because he loves you. See, sin is this. Sin is us looking at God saying, I know better. I've got this thing on my own. Don't worry about it, God. And here's how it goes on in verse 5. I want you to see this in the story. They drag this woman in front of Jesus, and here's what they say. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Now, stoning in the ancient world was a very specific practice. They would take someone who had sinned in a very specific way, bring them outside the city, and they would pick up rocks, and they would throw rocks at that person until they died. That was their execution style. Throw rocks until it crushes them, and they die. Now, you might think that's harsh. You you, you might think that's over the top. You, You might go, like, why would God actually command that type of thing? And here's the answer. Because what God is trying to show in the Old Testament to his people, where he says if someone commits adultery, they must be killed. He is trying to show them the gravity of sin. And he is trying to show them that sin has consequences. And I stand here before you tonight and tell you with absolute clarity that sin is not a game. It is not a laughing matter. It is not something to be joked about. Sin has consequences. 
And if you are not aware of those consequences, there is a devastating ending for you. See, as terrible as the idea of someone getting stoned and killed for their sin is, there's actually something much worse than being killed. There's something much worse than losing your life. And that something much worse is something the Bible is going to describe with the word hell. That is what the Bible describes. The Bible describes a reality called hell where there is an eternal punishment and separation for those who do not repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and trust in their Jesus. For those who have not been forgiven and redeemed by the blood of Jesus, what is awaiting them is this eternal reality of being separated from God and experiencing his condemnation. Now now listen, I, I don't love talking about hell. Like This isn't my thing that I just like love getting up talking about. This is a heavy subject and a meaningful subject. But I've also got to tell you about hell or I would be a terrible pastor. It's like this, like I've got little kids, right? And when little kids are running around in the front yard, you know what they do from time to time? They just kind of start running and they're chasing after a ball and it's going into the street and kids are not like you. Like kids don't like stop, look, listen, and then go into the street. What do they do? They just dash into the street to get the ball, whether a car's coming or not. And can you imagine... If my little girl ran after a ball and there's a truck coming down the road and I'm just standing there watching her do it and I just stood back and was like, well, I don't want to sound judgmental, so go for it. I'd be a terrible dad, right? I'd be a terrible dad if I was so afraid of sounding judgmental or harsh that I didn't scream, Grace, stop! Because a good father warns their children when something horrible is coming. And a good pastor stands up here and clearly tells you that if you do not trust Jesus, if you run from God your whole life, if you lean into your sin and lean away from your God, if you want nothing to do with your God, what awaits you after death is an eternity in a place called hell, a separation and a condemnation from our God. Listen, hell's not a joke. It's not a game. It's it's not something the church made up just to scare people into coming to Jesus. A lot like years ago, I was preaching at our young adults group, a college group here at our church, Um, and I talked about hell, and I talked about if you don't trust Jesus, like Jesus is the way, the truth, the life to heaven, and if you don't trust in Jesus, then what awaits you is not an eternity in heaven, but rather an eternity in hell, and afterwards, this guy comes up to me, and he's angry, and you know someone's real angry when they put their finger in your chest, and he comes up, he's this close to me, he says, are you telling me, are you telling me if I don't trust your Jesus, I'm going to hell, he goes, I'm a good person, I do everything right. You telling me I'm not going to heaven. And here's my response to this young man. And here's what I hope your response is when someone challenges you on hell. The first is this. I said, I'm not telling you anything. I didn't say that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and only through him do you get to the Father. Jesus said that. Like Jesus said that. So for this young man, his debate wasn't with me. His issue wasn't with me. His issue was with Jesus. And so often we want to turn this into a debate or a discussion. But here's what I want you to know tonight. If you're uncomfortable with me talking about hell, I want you to know that Jesus talks about it. Your issue is with him, not with me. Because Jesus talks about it. And here's the second thing I said to this young man. Like I was just talking to him and saying, okay, listen, you don't want anything to do with Jesus. He goes, you know what? I don't think I do. I want nothing to do with Jesus. And I said, here's what you need to understand about heaven. Heaven's not the nice place you go if you're a good person, and hell's the bad place you go where you're a bad person. I need you to know that every description of heaven in the Bible is like Jesus at the center and everyone worshiping him, all eyes on him, all attention about him. Everything in heaven is about Jesus. And he goes, okay. And so I asked him, why would you want to go to a heaven that's all about Jesus if you want nothing to do with him? See, that's what you need to know. 
Heaven and hell isn't like good people go up, bad people go down. It's like people who want Jesus can go there. Everyone who doesn't can go to the other place. That's really what it is. It's that simple. Like the whole heaven and hell thing is not about how good or bad you are. It's about where do you want to be with? Who do you want to be with for all of eternity? And if the answer is Jesus, if you put your faith and trust in him, even if you continue to sin and stumble and struggle in a million ways, if you die tonight, you will wake up in glory with Christ. But if you say, I want nothing to do with Jesus, I'm going my own way, I'm doing my own thing, the God of the universe will allow you to go in that direction. And that is what is being illustrated here. Uh, Again, it says the law of Moses commands us to stone a woman. It is a picture, a symbol of this deeper reality of the consequences of sin. But let me just be abundantly clear with everyone in this room tonight. Eyes on me. There's only one type of person who will not be saved. There's only one type of person who will not go to heaven. The only type of person who will not be saved, the only type of person who will not go to heaven is the type of person who does not believe they need saving. Is the person who does not think they need saving. They've got this thing on their own. See, sometimes we worry, well, what if I sin too much? What if I stumble too much? That's not the metric. It is the person who says, God, I don't need saving. I'm going to do this thing on my own. That is the person who ends up separated from God for eternity. Again, this is the warning Jesus gives us. He gives us this warning. And then in verse 6, it goes on this way. It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down and he wrote in the ground. So Jesus brings up this word sin that we're talking about here tonight. And the word sin in the Greek language that the New Testament is written in is the word hamartia. Hamartia was literally in the ancient world not a religious term. Get this. It was an archery term. Hamartia is when someone would pull back the string and loose the arrow and it would miss the bullseye. It would miss the mark. Hamartia, this word sin, literally means to miss the mark. And Jesus says, any of you who have never missed the mark... You go ahead and throw the first stone. And you know what's implicit in Jesus' little invitation there? He knows that everyone there has sinned. And I want you to know this, that every single person in this room is a sinner. And every single person in this room, because of their sin, deserves the condemnation, wrath, and alienation from God. I talk about hell. Do you know that I deserve hell? Like, I don't know what you think about me. I don't know what you think about my life. I deserve hell. I'm a sinner. I've rebelled against the holy God. And so do you. We have separated ourselves off from God, and we are deserving of sin, death, hell, wrath, and condemnation. And Jesus says, if any of you are not a sinner, you throw the first stone. Now, here's what I know happens. When I stand up here and say, you're worthy of condemnation, when I stand up here and say, because of your sin, you have been separated from God, you do not deserve heaven, you do not deserve his mercy, There's just like something that wells up inside some of you that goes, actually, I'm a pretty good person, Brian. I'm not like that person over there. I'm not like that person I saw on the news. I'm not like that person I saw on the internet. I'm not like that person I saw on my social media feed. I'm a good person. And here's what I want you to know, that good people don't make it to heaven. Saved and redeemed people make it to heaven. So see, here's what we do. We try to measure ourselves up against other people, and we're like, well, I'm a pretty good person, and I'm better than that girl over there or that guy over there, and therefore, I'm going to make it to heaven. But see, that's not how it works. And in order to do that, let me introduce you to someone named Mike Powell. Can I introduce you to someone named Mike Powell? Do you have a picture of Mike Powell for me to put up on the screen here? Here's Mike Powell. Mike Powell is part of the U.S. Olympic team, or he was. And Mike Powell is the record setter for the long jump in the world. 
He set a record of doing a long jump where he would run and jump from the ground of 29 and a half feet. And if you're like, that's no big deal, like, I dare you to jump a quarter of that. Like, it is insane what this man is able to do. Mike Powell is an unbelievable athlete. He is the world record holder for the long jump. But here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine I set up a competition between myself and Mike Powell. I said, we're going to do a long jump competition. And he looks at me and goes, really? Like, we're going to do a long jump competition? You? I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to do a long jump competition. But here's what the long jump competition is over. The long jump competition is over. Do we have a picture of the Grand Canyon here? Okay. So it's Mike and I, and we're like, all right, here's the competition. You and I are both going to run. We're both going to jump. We'll see who wins. And we both line up, and I take off with all my might, and I leap like a gazelle into the air. And I come off this cliff. And here's what's going to happen trajectory-wise. Mike Powell is going to be like this. Brian Howard is going to be like this. But Mike Powell is soon going to be like this, and both of us are going to plummet to our death. Mike Powell will make it further across the Grand Canyon, but he will not make it all the way across the Grand Canyon. And here's what I need you to know. There might be certain people who are so good, so holy, so righteous that they make it this far. And maybe some of you are like so not good, so not holy, so not righteous, you make it this far. But you know what happens? Whether you make it this far or whether you make it this far, you do not make it to the other side. And here's the spiritual metaphor. Doesn't matter how good you are, how righteous you think you are, there's no way you're making it to God. I just need you to know that. That your sin has so corrupted you, has so stained you, you will never make it to God on your own. I need you to understand that this, 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 is, the, this is the gospel message. The gospel message begins with this recognition that this jump none of us can make on our own. This is why Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says these words. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all of us fall off this cliff. All of us fall to our death. So here's what you need to understand. None of us are righteous enough to make it on our own. All of us need God to come get us. But do you know what the good news of the gospel is? That's exactly what Jesus came to do. Like, I just need you to know that tonight. Like, Jesus came to rescue sinners like you and me. It's not about us getting to God. It's about God getting to us. And Jesus says to this group of people, whoever is without sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. And here's what we recognize, that everyone in this room is a sinner, and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But can I tell you what that means for you, like really practically? Um, here's what it means practically. Take a look at the person on your left right now. Take a look at the person on your right right now. Some of you need to learn directions a little bit. Um, can I tell you, the person you just looked at is a sinner, now, do your best to, like, look at yourself. You, you are a sinner. And, and here's what's so wild about this. Like, when we read, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it means you're a sinner. You don't have to pretend anymore. Do you know that you are fooling exactly no one in this room when you pretend that you do not have sin? When you pretend you've got it all together and you're the perfect Christian who has never sinned and never struggled and never fallen short? You're fooling exactly no one. And here's why this is so liberating. Because you already know you're a sinner, and because everyone else in this room already knows you're a sinner, when you go to cabin time tonight, can you stop pretending you've got it all together and actually confess the junk that's going on in your life? Can you actually do that? Because everyone in your cabin already knows you're a sinner. You've not got them fooled. You're not, you're not fooling anyone. You can stop pretending. You can just say, I'm a sinner. Here's what I struggle with. Here's where I'm falling short. And why do we do that? 
Because the Bible says when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, when we say, I'm not actually as strong as I look, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with dishonoring and lying to my parents. I'm struggling with pride. I'm struggling with gossip. I drink on the weekends and I don't tell anyone. I've got a real problem with drugs that's going on. Like, I've got a real problem going on. When you confess that, the Bible says when you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, in due season, he will raise you up. So what do I want you to do tonight? You're going to get into your small group and let your pride not just like puff you up to be like, no, I'm good. I got everything together. Tonight, would you just like humble yourself before your group? Just confess the actual stuff that's going on. Say it out loud. Because once you identify it, you can actually start to work on it. Once you say it out loud, you can actually start to work through the sin in your life. Every one of us is a sinner. Let's stop pretending that we're not. Here's how the story continues on. I want you to see how it goes now. Verse 9, it says, Those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones going first. Now, the text doesn't actually say why the oldest ones go away first, but I think it's easy to assume that the oldest ones are more aware of their sin. I actually think part of growing up and part of growing older and part of growing more mature in Christ is recognizing the depth of your sin. See, when I was young, I thought I had one or two sins I struggled with. But the older I get, I realize that sin is actually much deeper than I thought. I realize that there are more issues in my heart and in my life than I actually thought. It goes on this way in verse 9. It says, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. You want to know what my Jesus is all about? If you're not a Christian, I just want you to listen so clearly to this part, because I want you to understand what Jesus is all about. If you are a Christian, and you've gotten some twisted version of Christ in your mind, listen clearly. This is what my Jesus is all about. The two things he says to this woman, the first thing he says is, I do not condemn you. Can I speak this over you in case someone needs to hear this tonight? On the authority of the word of God, I want to stand here and tell you six words tonight. And here are the six words. God is not disgusted with you. God is not disgusted with you. Jesus looks at this woman and he is not disgusted with her. He's not enraged with her. He doesn't hate her. He's not like, oh, you're so gross. He says, I don't condemn you. And again, some of you have just lugged in all this stuff, all this shame of something that happened to you or something you did, and you feel so gross like God would never want you. And I want you to see my Jesus look at this woman caught in adultery and say to her, I do not condemn you. He is not disgusted with you. But I also want you to notice that Jesus says another thing. See, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. But you know what else he says? He says, now go leave your life of sin. In other words, I do not condemn you, but I also need you to repent. I also need you to stop sinning. I also need you to turn from this way you're in. Because this whole pattern you've got going on in your life is going to destroy you and others if you are not careful. In other words, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, but also says, go and leave your life of sin. Now remember, I talked about this on the first night. I talked about some of you are truth people. You know the word of God, and you know the morality of the Bible, and you're not afraid to say it. And you truth people, you love to go leave your life of sin. You're like, yeah, that's what people should do. They need to turn from their sin and stop doing bad things. But then there's the grace people. And the grace people love, neither do I condemn you. You're like, that's my Jesus. He doesn't condemn people. I love that about Jesus. He is not condemning this woman. But here's what I want you to remember. That John chapter 1 says Jesus is full of both grace and truth. And so what do you need to do with respect to your sin? You need to receive God's grace but also walk in God's truth. 
What does Jesus have to say to you in your sin tonight? Whatever that sin may be in your life, he says, neither do I condemn you. And it's not because he doesn't take your sin seriously. It's not because you shouldn't take your sin seriously. Hear me on this. It's because you should take Jesus seriously when he said it is finished on the cross. You should take Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 seriously when it says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in other words, he does not condemn you. And on the other hand, leave your life of sin. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. Both of those things should be ringing through your mind tonight. Let me show it to you how it says it in, first, uh, in Peter. Um, he's going to put this verse up on the screen. First, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So again, here's the I don't condemn you part. God is patient with you. And some of you are not patient with you. You're like, I've been sinning this way for years. I've been stuck in pornography, stuck in lies. I've been struggling with drinking. And here's what the Bible says. God is patient with you. But it also says he wants everyone to come to repentance. That God wants both out of you. He wants you to understand his grace and his mercy and his compassion and his love for you. But he also wants you to come to a place of repentance. And tonight I want to talk to you and invite you into repentance tonight. Here's what repentance looks like. Repentance is seven words. I gave you six words earlier. He's not disgusted with you. Here's the seven words of repentance. God is right and I am wrong. Remember earlier we said that sin was me saying, God, I know better? Here's what repentance is. It's me saying, God, you are right and I am wrong. Repentance literally is an image. means you're walking this way, you plant your foot in the ground, and you go in a totally different direction. In other words, to repent is not to feel bad about your sin. It is to say, I'm going to stop doing this altogether and go in a different direction. And that's what I want to invite you toward tonight. I want tonight to be a night of repentance all across camp. I want tonight to be a night where you receive the mercy and grace of Jesus who says, neither do I condemn you, but also a night where we say, I'm going to repent of my sin. Now, here's how I want to close. We're in John chapter 8, and later in John chapter 8, there's a very famous, famous line. And I think this famous line is going to help us understand um, a little bit of how to repent from our sin, how to turn from our sin. Because here's what I know is true of some of you. For some of you, I think what happens is this. You're like, Brian, I've been trying to repent of my sin but I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this anger I have. I'm stuck in this lust I have. I'm trying to walk away from drugs or alcohol, but I keep going back to it. I try to walk away from this laziness that's inside of me, but I just keep getting drawn back into it. I've tried to repent. I've tried to turn. How do I get set free? And later in John chapter 8, there is a famous sentence that many people, millions of people who aren't even Christians know. Jesus says this. See if you can finish the sentence. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So you know what a lot of people do? They go, okay, if I want to be free of my sin, i got to know more information. i got to learn more about God. i got to know more facts. i got to think right. i got to understand it deeper. And once I understand it deeper, then it will set me free. But do you know that that is not actually what Jesus said in John chapter 8? Do you know that that's only part of what Jesus had to say in John chapter 8? Let me show you the full verse here in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, if you hold to my teaching, if you walk in obedience, if you actually do what I told you to do, then you will be my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, if you want to be set free from some sin that is holding you down right now, it doesn't begin with you just getting a bunch of more information about Jesus. It begins not with information or knowledge. It begins with obedience. I need you to know 
that if you want to break free of the sin that is holding you in this life, your first track should not be, let me get more information or knowledge into my brain. It should be, I should act in obedience to what Jesus has told me to do. What does that look like practically? Let me tell you a few things. It means, we talked about this earlier this week, read your Bible. You want to know how to break free of your pornography addiction? Become an addict of the Bible. Become just passionate about the Bible. I have a challenge I meant to give you the other morning. I'm going to give it to you tonight. I want to challenge some of you in the final two days we have, two full days of camp, Thursday, Friday, I want to challenge some of you to read the entire Gospel of John before camp is over. I want you to just sit down and read through the entire Gospel. You know how long it will take you if you do it in one sitting? Two hours. If you sit down and read the whole Gospel of John, I just promise you, you'll see Jesus clearly. So what am I called to do if I want to break free of some kind of addiction? I need to be the type of person who does what Jesus told me to do. Read my Bible. Can I just challenge some of you when you get home from church or from camp? Lean in with your church. Join a Bible study, a life group, a small group, whatever you call them. Serve at your church. Give money to your church. Serve on a mission trip. Lean in with the programming. Be a part of the children's ministry. Lean in. Obey what Jesus actually had to say. Honor your parents. Love your neighbor. Walk in prayer. When I do these things, that is what it means to hold to Jesus' teaching. It means to listen to God and to do what he says. And then you want to know what it means on the other side? It means that if you want to break free from the things that are holding you back, you don't just need more information in your mind. You need to act out on what you already know you need to do. Um, It was about 10 years ago. I was at winter camp up at Hume Lake, up in the mountains, uh, the main campus. And uh, I was with this young man, and he was in a really toxic relationship. And some of you know what that looks like, where it's not just like, eh, they have a fight occasionally. It was like really toxic and destructive in a lot of different sinful ways for him. And we all knew he needed to break up with this girl. And he was at camp, and he finally came to the realization that this girl is keeping me from pursuing Jesus. And that's not a her issue, that's a me issue. And I need to break up with her in order to keep following Jesus. And so we came to this conclusion, and we were sitting in the back of chapel, and he goes, okay, I'm going to do it. I was like, okay, praise God for you, man. Like, okay, we'll, we'll do this together. It's so great. And then he finds me later that night, and he goes, Brian, it's done. I broke up with her. I was like, excuse me? I was like, she's not at camp. How did you do that? He's like, no, 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 like I broke up with her tonight. I was like, how in the world did you possibly do that? Because we're up at Hume Lake and we're in the mountains. And up at Maine, Hume Lake, there's no cell phone reception. I'm like, how did you do that? He's like, Brian, it's the greatest thing. There's pay phones over there. I called her up and I dumped her right now. I was like, oh, no. And like, I'm not here recommending like a pay phone dump tonight. But, but here's what I loved about this young man. I'll tell you what I loved. I, I, I love that here's what he did. He didn't just think about things. He did what he knew he needed to do. He listened to God, and he did what he was told. It was just a month ago, I was preaching again at that young adults group back at our church, uh, and I was preaching on sexual sin, and I was just really going hard after it, uh, of, hey, listen, this is destroying your life, this is a problem, and one of the things I said at the end of the sermon is, you need to drag it out of the darkness and into the light. You need to humble yourself and actually tell someone who's meaningful in your life about your sexual sin, you need to confess it to someone. And then later in the sermon, I was like, listen, if you're really struggling with this and you want a professional, come see me. I'll hook you up with a counselor. We'll get you a phone number to call. It'll be great. After the service, I'm talking and praying with people. and We're just having this amazing time of prayer. This young man named Landon walks up to me. And he goes, hey, uh, Brian, I was going to ask you if I could have the phone number for that counselor. I'm really struggling. It's been a problem for a while. I need to deal with this. Could you give me that phone number? And I give him the phone number. And I put my arm around Landon. And I say, Landon. I don't know if you'll actually go see this counselor, but will you promise me that you will at least have the courage to make the phone call? And he looks me dead in the eye and goes, after the phone call I just made, Brian, there is no hard phone call to make. I was like, excuse me? 
He goes, you told me to drag my sin into the light and tell someone who mattered in my life. And I realized if I was going to take that serious, I had to do it right now. So the service ended. I walked outside. I called my mother. I told her everything about my sexual sin. Yeah. Yeah. And listen, 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 listen. Don't miss this part. Listen, this is where it gets so important. You might think what Landon did was crazy. But I think crazy is you struggling in the dark and never telling anyone and thinking it's going to get better all on its own. That's crazy. What Landon did was brave. What Landon did was hold to Jesus' teaching. And as he held to Jesus' teaching, then he knew the truth and the truth will set him free. Some of you need to do something drastic here at camp, after camp, where you say, I'm in on this. You need to take your stash of alcohol or drugs and not just like whittle it down or be like, I'll try not to use it. Destroy it. Throw it in the trash. Give it to your youth pastor. The stuff you brought up here to camp, like that never happens, hand it to your youth pastor tonight. Say, I'm done with this. Like, like be the type of person who's willing to actually take steps. And maybe it's not that dramatic, but maybe it's the type of thing where you need to actually put something into action because Jesus doesn't just say, know the truth and it'll set you free. Here's what Jesus said. He says, if you hold to my teaching, then you will be my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You want to know the simple two-step process to overcoming the besetting sins in your life? Write this down. We'll close on this. Number one, listen to God. Listen to him. Listen to him through his word. Listen to him through his church, his people. Listen to what God is saying through prayer. Listen to God. And number two, do what he says. Do what he says. Because when you listen to Jesus and you do what he says, you will truly be his disciple. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks once again for the opportunity to look at your word, to think deeply about what you have for us. Um, God, I'm just so aware of a message like this and what it stirs up in people. Guilt or shame or anxiety or fear or maybe a godly kind of sorrow or repentance or something in between. And Father, I pray just the words of Jesus would echo in the hearts of every young heart and mind tonight. I pray that someone needs to hear tonight that Jesus does not condemn them, that his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his goodness and his faithfulness will follow them all the days of their life. But then I pray for the person tonight who needs to hear, go leave your life of sin, for the person tonight who needs to repent and confess before their cabin and before you, God Almighty, who needs to leave their life of sin. So God, I know there's so many things going on in the hearts and minds of your people in this space tonight. I pray that you would meet us I pray that you would show us that you are the God whose arms are wide open and you welcome us to come to you by the love and the mercy that we see in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for that mercy. And we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.